Mark chapter 11, verse 17. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus spoke these words after he entered into the temple court following the entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is the day that Israel should have been looking for all these years. The day that the Messiah, that the Christ comes. The day that he appears. The day that he rides into town. And had they been prepared for him, which God knew that they wouldn't. God was prepared for that. But if we could rewrite the story to where they were prepared, Christ would have entered into his temple. The nation would have worshipped him. And there would have been redemption. But that's not what happened. Because they were not ready. Again, this did not surprise God. This did not surprise the Lord. That was all, their lack of readiness was all part of the plan which led to Christ going to the cross and dying for our sins. That's how God works. You think you can rebel and derail God's plans. And God planned for your rebellion and he works it into the plan for his good. And that's how we know in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Whatever monkey wrench we throw into it, God works it for the good. Jesus comes into the temple court. And instead of seeing people worshiping, instead of seeing people praying, instead of seeing proper sacrifices being brought to the altar... What he finds is a marketplace. He finds people selling doves. He finds people selling sacrificial animals. He finds money changers because to buy the sacrificial animal, you have to have temple money. And so you have to buy the temple money from the temple money sellers. If you've ever, when I was a kid, we used to go to Mazio's Pizza. They, they had video games. And, and you, you couldn't just take a quarter and put it in the video game at Mazio's. You had to get a token. And so you'd get you a couple of dollars, put it in the machine, it spit out about eight, you know, depending on how many dollars you put in, spit out a bunch of tokens. And if you were really hardcore, you had a cup that you kept your tokens in, all right? And so the temple money was a lot like those tokens. You got to buy those. Well, if you got tokens left over, they're worthless. Mm -hmm. At one time I had Mazio's tokens, and Mazio, I don't know if there's even any of those in business anymore. Um, the, the, you can't buy anything with them now. When you were done buying your sacrificial animal, if you had temple money left over, you could go back and exchange it for real money, but the exchange rate never worked in your favor. Right. <laughs> Y'all ever travel internationally? I've ne I never have, but I'm told that when the exchange rate doesn't work in your favor there either, okay? It's just the way it was. And so Jesus sees merchants selling sacrificial animal. He sees money changers. And so you have folks that are going to the temple to worship, but they can't quite get there because of all this stuff that's going on. All this stuff is getting in the way. And this bothers Jesus. If you want to get on God's bad side, get between him and one of his people. Get in the way of somebody who is coming to him. If you want to get on God's bad side, 
hinder somebody else's faith. And so Mark gives us kind of a tame version of this story. Because in this story, we don't see Jesus making the whip and beating them out of there. He just overturns their tables and runs them out of there. But we, we, we don't, Mark kind of tones this down a little bit. And he focuses on the words of Jesus. He taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of all shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. He taught them. Even when Jesus is angry, he's still teaching. He's still discipling. He's still helping. That's how loving Jesus is. When you see the Bible say in the New Testament, is it not written? That means they're quoting the Old Testament somewhere. And so Jesus says, is it not written, my house should be called of all nations, the house of prayer. So we got to go find where that was written. I found it in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Isaiah was saying that God would bring people of all nations from all over the world to his temple to accept their sacrifices and to welcome them into his kingdom. The temple would be the place where they meet. Not the place where all the people of the world would meet, but the place where God would meet all the people of the world. Mm -hmm. See, the people had forgotten the purpose of the temple. Their faith gave way to the motions. And the motions gave way to tradition. And tradition gave way to new ideas. And new ideas led further away from the purpose of the temple. And so by the time Jesus shows up, this whole thing is a mess. And I believe we've seen the same thing in the modern American church. We went from being people of faith to being motivated by our faith and our relationship with God to, you know, you get on a spiritual low sometimes and you go through the motions. And the motions breeds tradition. Tradition breeds boredom. Boredom breeds new ideas. New ideas bring us further away from the faith. And I think that's what's happened with us. And so I thought it would be good to look at this verse to remind us who we are in Christ. And what this life is really about. And I want to say what this church is really about. But this is not a church growth sermon. And this is not a how to do church message. This is reminding us who we are. Verse 17. My house should be called of all nations the house of prayer. But you have made it the den of thieves. I want us to look at that concept. What is a house of prayer? I want us to look at the concept for all nations. And I want us to look at what Jesus meant by a den of thieves. Because if you're sitting there selling goats, and these goats are $100 a piece, and you think you're selling them for a fair price, and Jesus comes in and calls you a thief, you might be a little offended by that. And I think that those people were. We're going to talk about what Jesus meant by a den of thieves. So let's talk about the house of prayer. The temple. Jesus said, that's the house of God. 
Jesus said, is it not written that my house should be called of all nations the house of prayer? The temple. The first version of the temple was the tabernacle that the Israelites built in the wilderness under God's direction as they prepared a place to worship God as he led them through the wilderness. The tabernacle. Um, Brother Frank and Brother Jim liked the NIV study Bible. I picked up an NIV many times, but one time I was reading one of the Old Testament passages. In the, in the, in the NIV that I had, it called the tabernacle the tent of meeting. And so being the good King James guy that I am, I had to make sure that that was accurate. And so I looked it up. That's what it means. The tent of meeting. That's what the tabernacle means. The word tabernacle means tent of meeting. What does that mean, tent of meeting? It means that's where you go to meet God. What does it mean to go meet God? It means to go to God on his terms, to show repentance and faith. And the way they did that in the Old Testament was through the sacrifices. It's where you went to confess your sins to God, to seek forgiveness for for your sins, to seek redemption, to seek cleansing, to seek restoration, and to lift your request up to God. We see the nation of Israel in the Old Testament many times going to the tabernacle or going to the temple to repent. We see people in the Old Testament lifting up their request before God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have Hannah that is begging God for a son. Saying, hey, if you give me a son, I will turn around and give him right back to you. I'll dedicate him to you. I will, he, will be, he will be your child that you will raise up in your temple. She was so driven by her prayer. She was so broken over her situation that the priest actually thought she was drunk. And she goes, no, 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 I'm just really bereaved. I'm praying and, and you know, and the priest goes, okay, well, God's going to grant you your prayer request. Get out of here. And God granted her request. She had a son. And so she followed through on her promise. Brings little Samuel back to the temple or to the, t- to the tabernacle. And says, you remember me? I was the woman you thought was drunk. So I was praying for a son. You told me he would grant my request. And so he did. And I promised him I'd give my son to him. So here you go. And the priest was like, all right then. And, and, and the rest is history. Luke chapter 1, Zacharias is in the temple. And the angel tells Zacharias, the Lord has heard your prayer. Mm-hmm. Which means that Zacharias, as he was burning that incense in the, prayer, in the temple, was lifting up his own prayer. Same prayer, that he'd have a son. That's the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Yep. Why was it called the tent of meeting? Why was it the place you went to meet God? Because that's where God's presence dwelt. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 56, 7, once again, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. It shall be a house of prayer. It shall be where people go to seek the Lord. And if you understand what the temple was all about and what worship in the temple was all about and what the sacrifices were all about, it's more than just asking God to heal me of this disease. It's more than Hannah asking God for a son or Zacharias asking God for a son or various kings of Israel asking God to deliver them from the invading armies and to strengthen our economy and to handle all these situations that are in our lives. 
at the core of going to the temple was reconciling to God and seeking redemption and forgiveness from sin. One of these days, and I've got to do this quickly, but I want to bring Brother Bobby Sparks to town. He's an expert on the temple. And I want him to set up his model here. And I want him to take you through the trip to, at the temple. Because I keep coming back to these points. And I want y'all to see it and understand it. Because it's all a picture of Jesus. When you went through the tabernacle door into the inner court, that gate was small. Just big enough for one person at a time to go through. Every one of us will face the Lord alone. I'm not going to get to take Jessica in there and have her do the talking for me. I'm going to stand before the Lord on my own. You see? When you went into the temple court, now you take this little sacrificial lamb into the temple court. And what's going on in there? You have animals being sacrificed for sin. Can you imagine what a mess that must have been. Can you imagine the sight? What would that tell you about how God felt about sin? He takes it pretty seriously. So you take your little sacrificial lamb, and there's an altar. And I have jokingly, but halfway seriously, referred to the altar as a giant barbecue grit. Got great. Giant barbecue pit. It's a, I've got some very highly educated brethren. And am, I, am I wrong? All right. I mean, read the book of Leviticus. You you kill it. You put it on the you put it on the altar. The fat burns up, and you eat the rest. Right? That's that's an Old Testament spiritual barbecue to me. But I'm being silly. This is a serious deal. You take your lamb up to the altar. You t there are four horns on the corners of the altar. You tie your little lamb to the horn. There's significance to that. That horn represents God's judgment. Yes. This lamb has been tied to God's judgment for your sin. Mm -hmm. When Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says he was made sin for us. All right. This is where it gets hard. Because when you sacrificed your lamb, see, we're so automated now, I can just take something to somebody and they'll fix it and they'll take care of it for me. You couldn't do that back then. When you took your little lamb to the altar and you tie this to the horn of the altar, now the priest would show you how and the priest would offer you assistance. But when it came to killing that lamb and sacrificing it, you were the one that had to kill the lamb. Amen. And you would cut... And this lamb ain't done anything. There's nothing wrong with this lamb. He's a perfect little lamb. He ain't, what did he do to deserve this? Nothing. But because of your sin, you have to cut this little lamb's throat. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was perfect, that he was innocent, that he was without sin. That's why Peter referred to him as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When John the Baptist in John chapter 1 said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, they under, we're like, what do you mean, Lamb of God? The people there knew exactly what he was talking about because they had done this. Mm -hmm. Jesus was God's Lamb, sinless, 
perfect, innocent, giving his life for the sins of the world. There's blood. What do we do with the blood? We take the blood and we put it on the horn of that altar. The blood of the lamb covers the horn. The blood of Jesus Christ covers God's judgment for our sin. And then there were various sacrifices. Some of them involved, I'm I'm not going to go into it. Some of them involved, I mentioned the barbecue part. Some of them involved placing the lamb on the altar, cooking the lamb, allowing the fat to be burned up, that was God's portion, and then you and the priest ate a portion. We Baptists, we like to use the word fellowship. (laughs) When Baptists use the word fellowship, that means there's going to be food there. (laughs) So if I say come to a fellowship at my house, there's going to be food. I can't tell you what's on the menu. It depends on who won the argument, me or Jessica. If Jessica won the argument, you are going to have fine Asian cuisine and you're going to have a stew or a roast. If I won the argument, it's fried chicken and mashed potatoes. Okay? But you're not going to, you're not going to go wrong. Whatever, it's going to be good. All right? The eating of the lamb, and this wasn't in all sacrifices, but it was the son, represented the restored fellowship between God and man. When Jesus says, my house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, he's talking about more than the simple prayers that we lift up every day. Dear Lord, get me out of this mess. Dear Lord, please heal this. Dear Lord, please fix this. Dear Lord, please make me feel better about myself. Whatever our prayers are. This was where you came to plead to God for forgiveness, reconciliation, having that relationship restored with him, and being at peace with him. If you have felt estranged from God, if you are struggling with sin in your life, if you are not living up to God's standard, if you are under conviction, if if you are unsure of where you will go when you die, you're in the right place. Because in the New Testament, the church replaced the temple as God's house of prayer. And so what we are to do here is we are to come together in the Lord's presence, lift up our sin before him, Pray for forgiveness of that sin and be restored in our relationships with God. I come before you this morning. I've told y'all lots of stories. I used to be bad. I used to be bad. I can tell you back when I was in college, I was bad. I'm all better now. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I'm not all better now. I'm different now. I'm a different person now. I don't do a lot of the things I did back then. But I'm going to tell y'all somehow that I have beat the sin bug. And you can too. For just a little seed offer. No. No, that's, that's, that's bad. No, I still have sin in my life. I have it. And it's not just the, I, 
I said golly the other day when I stumped my toe. No, I mean, I've got some, I've got some significant sin, some really serious heart issues. I'm really spiritually weak today. I am. And y'all know it. Because Brother David told me I needed more vitamin D. I have no idea how he was able to assess that. But something about me looks off or else he wouldn't have told me I needed more vitamin D. I'm spiritually weak today because I'm struggling. Impure motivations, impure thoughts, <coughs> decisions not being made out of faith. Well, at least you haven't killed anybody. Well, let's not let that be the standard, shall we? That's not really setting the bar that high. I have issues. I have issues. I have anger issues. I have issues of not being thankful. Um, I have issues with having my priorities out of line. I have issues with thoughts that go through my head, with desires that go through my head, with desires in my heart and things that I want to do to glorify myself and not God. With um, just, uh, preacher can't stand up here and confess. Everybody leave, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> but I know whom I have believed, Amen. and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Every Sunday, I get the, the privilege of coming in here. And I get to come before God. And I get to say to God, God, I, I still don't know why I've got this job. This makes no sense to me. There's other men out there better. But God has put me in this place to preach. And I think, <clears throat> and I've read in scripture that God makes strength out of brokenness. Yes, he does. Because if I don't have any issue, if I don't think I have issues, everybody's got issues with sin, some just don't think they do. But if I've convinced myself I don't have issues, then I can't be of any good to anybody. So I sit here before y'all broken. And I've got stuff going on that I don't tell anybody about, and I struggle with that, but I lift it up to God. Yes, amen. And I know that God loves me regardless of those issues. Amen. And he's going to work in my life to resolve those issues. We don't just keep those, we don't let those issues hang around. We have sin in our lives, we turn from it. That's why we take that lamb up to the altar and we sacrifice it in the Old Testament. This is a big deal. We've got to turn away from this stuff. But God's the one that does the cleansing. So if you're here this morning, you're struggling with sin, and you're keeping it all to yourself. The people closest to you don't even know about this. Your spouse doesn't know what you're dealing with. You're keeping this stuff really close and tight in here. Let me tell you something. You're in the right place because mm -hmm. this is the house of prayer, Amen. and this is where you can let that burden go up to the Lord, Amen. and you can trust in the sacrifice that God made, not on the altar of the temple, but on the cross. Yes where Jesus Christ endured his wrath on our behalf. Yes. And he shed his blood to cover God's Amen. wrath and judgment for our sin. Amen. This is why we gather every Sunday morning. Amen. Also, this is what the function of the church is to be. The function of the church is to be the place and to be the people through whom people Connect with God. I was 
at the Gordonwood Hall of Champions induction banquet one night. Brownwood is so good at football, they have their own Hall of Fame. And Dallas Houston, whom I worked with at the time at KOXE, was being inducted. And I'll never forget how he opened his acceptance speech. He said that he has three things slash people to thank for his being inducted in the Gordon Wood Hall of Champions. The first is asthma, because his asthma was the reason his parents moved from Corpus Christi to Brownwood, Texas. The second was a car accident. If y'all don't know the story, he was in a major car accident on the circle in Brownwood in 1960, in which his voice box was injured, and that's why his voice sounds the way it does. But the first one he thanked was Jesus, because Jesus saved his soul, and he has a testimony. And what he said is like, first I'd like to thank Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I'd like to introduce you to him. And that's his function. That's what he does. And that's what we should do. We should introduce people to Jesus. We should help people connect with God. Now, I'm not sitting here saying, I am saying, you should witness, you should pass out tracts, but this is not what that's about. This is about you living your life in such a way that you bring people into God's presence. And this is about us worshiping as a church and fellowshipping as a church in a way that when people come here, they're entering into God's presence. Yes. This is not a multi-million dollar organization. This is not a movement. This is not a revolution. This is a group of sinners coming together to reconnect with God on a weekly basis. And when people come in and, and join with us or visit with us, they need to have that experience of having been in the Lord's presence. Of having been able to freely lift their request up to God to seek repentance, to seek forgiveness and and reconciliation with God. That's what we should foster here. That's what we're about. We need to keep church true to its purpose. Be great commission oriented. Preach Jesus. Preach redemption. Preach gospel. Preach salvation. We're not going to preach methods. You will never hear me complain about contemporary versus traditional worship. I address it, I talk about it, but it's always a side issue, very very shortly lived. I'm not going to say I never mention it, but I, try, I don't like to preach about that. I don't like to preach about politics. Spent five years on the radio talking about politics. You know my viewpoints. Okay? But I think if we win an election and we lose our souls, we lost. We're not going to preach politics here. Not going to preach church politics. The reason we haven't put the floor in is because we don't have the money for it yet. We'll get there. We did have some disagreements on what kind of floor to put down. I've decided I'm just going to do the thing. And then we won't have the opportunity to have the argument. And if I pick the wrong floor, you can fire me. And then y'all are all in agreement that I need to be fired for picking the wrong floor. And the church unity remains. We're not going to do that. We're not going to get divided over these issues. We're not going to do church politics. And we're not going to preach works. Jesus said something profound in John chapter 7. He said that you haven't kept the law. Why do you go about to kill me? Or why do you condemn me? I'm not going to sit here and try to condemn you. 
and tell you, the fish around, try to figure out what's going wrong in your life so I can make you feel really bad about it. If I can make you feel bad about it, and we can sing Amazing Grace at the end of service well enough, maybe you'll cry and you'll come down and you'll say, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior, and I'll lead you through a sinner's prayer, and I get to go tell my buddies, hey, I had one saved at my service last Sunday. That's jacked up, isn't it? Yeah. No. I can't keep the law. So I can't condemn you for doing it. I can't sit here and talk about the drunk guy out there and, well, these drunk people out there running around everywhere. I can't get mad at them because I haven't kept the law. I can tell you that alcohol will destroy you. Yes. I can tell you what adultery will do to you. But I can't condemn you for that because I'm guilty too. You see? No, we're going to keep the message on the gospel. Yes. That doesn't mean salvation every Sunday. What that does mean is we see God's redemption and his love and his grace and his transformation in everything that we read in the Bible. Amen. His house will be a house of prayer. Yes. And his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. In Isaiah 56, 7, God said, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Who are them? Who are them? In Isaiah chapter 56, God was telling Israel that he's going to bring the Gentiles in. Now the Gentiles are coming in. Who are the Gentiles? They're non-Jews in the Old Testament. For us, they're people that are non-believers. They're non-believers. And guess what? There's non-believers in every race, every ethnicity, every nation. God is not a respecter of persons. He loves all. He reaches out to all. And will save all who repent regardless of background or nationality. He loves rich people. He loves poor people. He loves white people, black people. What's that song when we were a kid? Red and yellow, black and white. They are fresh as in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Hey, we're all little children. All of us. Yes, we are. Rich ones, poor ones. Ones that have degrees, ones that don't have degrees. Learned ones, unlearned ones. Loves all of them. Loves the ones that dress up for Sunday morning. Loves the ones that show up in their t-shirt and ripped up pants. Mm-hmm. Man, those old blue jeans are, are comfortable, aren't they? <laughs> I'd, I'd wear them to church if y'all wouldn't look at me with a side eye. Y'all can do that. I can't. <laughs> That's the privilege of being a pastor. You have to wear pants. <laughs> Jesus restates this concept in Mark eleven seventeen. He says, is it not written... My house should be called a house of my house should be called of all nations, the house of prayer. The Lord was teaching His people that He will one day draw and save people from all over the world. Wow. If you're a foreigner going to the temple and you walk up in that temple and all of a sudden everybody's hitting you up for the money changing and the you got to buy a better lamb than what you got and and, and you're getting a sales pitch every 15 feet. What's that doing to your ability to come to the Lord? Mm-hmm. <sighs> You know, um, that's, we got to be careful about that. Yeah. We got to be careful that our, that our side projects don't get in the way of people worshiping. Um, we got to be careful that we don't get so caught up in selling briskets and sausage wraps that we forget that our mission is to spread the gospel to people, not see if we can get a couple of bucks out of them to send kids to church camp. We haven't done that, by the way. We haven't sold brisket wraps or anything like that. I'm just, we've got to stay on target here. That's actually the next point I'm trying to make. Let's talk about all nations. Everybody. 
Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That word nations comes from a Greek word that means ethnicities. So he wasn't saying necessarily, although he does want us to go into all the world, but what he's saying is to preach the gospel to everybody. So as the disciples would be going through the world, don't just go to the Jewish communities and preach the gospel to the Jewish community. You preach to the Gentiles as well, to the Greeks as well, to the Romans as well, to the barbarians as well. The Apostle Paul says, I'm debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the learned and to the unlearned. Everybody, you preach the gospel to everybody. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them. This word teaching means to indoctrinate. Teaching, which means we do get deeper into the scriptures. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. That word teach means to make disciples. To make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? What does that mean? We're discipling folks. We're making disciples. We say this stuff in church. I don't know what it means. I do, but I mean, how often have we said things we haven't really thought about what it means? Had a friend in a personal evangelism class back in seminary. He was using the Ray Comfort Ten Commandments approach to this class and in, in witnessing class and personal evangelism. You had to witness to the instructor. You had to try to convince the instructor to be saved. You talk about intimidating. And you did this in front of the entire class. Mm-hmm. And so my friend is taking the instructor through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever... Looked upon a woman with lust. You know, the Ray Comfort thing. And the instructor goes, well, yeah, but haven't you too? He goes, well, yeah, all of us have sin. He goes, well, what's the difference between you? He goes, well, I've been redeemed. And the instructor says, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> uh, not good. Not good. We've got to know what these words mean. What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to disciple? It means to evangelize. But it also means to minister. Amen. You know what we're not doing? Minister, to mentor. Minister and mentor. Minister means to serve, but to mentor. You know what we're not good at doing at churches anymore? We're not good at mentoring. Come on to church Sunday. And then we won't see you again until next Sunday if you come back. If you don't come back, we call you. Missed you last Sunday. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll be there Sunday. You don't come back next Sunday. Well, they must not have meant it. We're not good at mentoring anymore. We're not good at discipling. Discipling, what do you see when you see discipling? You see Jesus walking with his disciples. What's he doing? He's teaching them. You see Paul walking with Timothy. What's Paul doing with Timothy? He's teaching him. Mentor. I keep reading these articles. The church of the future will do this. The church of the future will do that. The church of the future is going to be the one that's good at mentoring. All nations, all all ethnicities. That means we have to get out of our comfort zone. We baptize and then we indoctrinate. We need to stand ready to help and minister to others of all backgrounds. And finally, I want to look at Jesus' comment, Ye have made it a den of thieves. This could be a reference to Jeremiah 7.11 that says, Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. In Jeremiah's day, the people had turned to idolatry, and they had brought their idols into the temple, and they were worshiping these idols in the temple. 
they had polluted the temple with idolatry and immorality. Jesus is accusing the merchants and the money changers of the same thing. You see, when we forget the purpose of the church, we begin to do different things as a church. And when we stray from God's purpose, and we do what God never commanded, we enter into error, and we sin. And sometimes those things that God never told us to do become idols, because we put more emphasis on that than we do what God told us to do. And when this happens, we hinder people from connecting with God. God has to use someone else. God has to lead them down a different path. May we never be so guilty. I remember when I was growing up, long-haired guy comes into the back of the church. We'd all look over our shoulders. When the preacher called for the invitation, is that sinner going to walk the aisle and be saved, or is he going to continue in his sins? Did any of us go shake his hand? Did we visit with him? Hey, how you doing? Glad to have you here. That's my sin. I don't know what everybody else did. I know what I did. I mean, I was 12, but I know what I did. God's not a respecter of persons. That's when we do that, we're the money changers. Oh, they've got tattoos. We're the money changers if we take that attitude. I wonder if he'll be a good tither. That's money changers if we do that. Mm-hmm. No. Let's not be a den of thieves. Mm-hmm. We're here because we're sinners saved by grace. Amen. We need to share that grace mm-hmm. with others. 